Outrider podcast, Bad Business, is a six-part series about crime and detective fiction. I'm joined by a pair of shady figures, my friends Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. So come with us as we descend into the seedy underbelly of fiction, where charming crooks, hard-boiled detectives, and femme fatales are all up to some very bad business. Welcome to the Outrider Podcast. This is our final episode. Today we're going to be discussing um, Lawrence Osborne's Only to Sleep, a Philip Marlowe novel. And with me, as always, uh, is Todd and Paul. So I think Todd has some bio information for us on Lawrence Osborne. Good old Lawrence. Uh, born in 58 in England and grew up there but went to Harvard. And I know he worked for the New York Times as a journalist, uh, probably through, I, don't, I actually don't know when he broke off from the Times. He, I know he was a travel writer at certain points, and he published, uh, he's published several acclaimed nonfiction books. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that he was writing fiction all along. But he really only got the fiction. He published a novel early in in his early 20s, which Mm -hmm. I haven't read, but then broke off publishing fiction until he, I think, until after he turned 50, really. Huh. And, but he's gone on kind of a string in the last five or six years. And he's published several good novels in a row. Ballad of a Small Player is really good. Beautiful Animals. But anyway, uh, he cites uh, Paul Bowles, Patricia Highsmith, Graham Greene, Evelyn Waugh. You can okay. see Graham Greene for sure. But I, I have never read Graham Greene. Okay. Have you, Paul? I haven't, no. So I have to take Todd's word for it. You can take my word for it. <laughs> I'm not we the certainly only, can. I'm not the only one. If you research him at all on online, everybody says he's like Graham Greene. But in any case, uh, the Guardian, he lives in Bangkok now. So he left New York. Apparently New York kind of didn't work for Osborne after a while, and he left. And after he published, I think, The Ballad of a Small Player, the Guardian went over to Bangkok to interview him. And there are a couple of interesting interviews with Osborne out there. I just wanted to quote briefly one thing that he told The Guardian. He said, uh, so many writers live their whole lives in rooms. You can be too civilized in the environment you have around you, too oriented towards speaking engagements and dinner parties. That has no interest for me these days. He said, you get to a point where you don't care anymore, and that's when you can start to write. So that's what he told The, the Guardian. <laughs> And he's also been asked a little bit about place because he seems to like the Graham Greene comparison comes back to, to a certain extent place because he tends to like what I suppose for Americans or Westerners tend to be the more exotic locales. Mm-hmm. That's a Graham Greene thing too. But anyway, uh, Osborne is, is kind of into this uh, Aristotle thing of unity of time and place. He likes place, right? and he says that for him, place creates character, not the other way around. When you get the place right, you can make the story as fantastical as you like. Okay. And (laughs) one other quote that I liked, the L.A. Times, after or right before Only to Sleep, the novel we're going to be talking about here in about a minute, sent a journalist over to ask uh, to talk to, to Osborne and he, the journalist asked him uh, if he enjoyed writing this uh, Marlowe novel and uh, Osborne said oh yeah he looked forward to it it was like eating chocolate every day <laughs> so there we are with uh... so had he written 
detective or noir fiction before? No. So why why did the, the... the Chandler estate sought him out, and yeah. some of his well, Ballad of a Small Player does have a first person narrator, mm-hmm. a good first person narrator, and I suspect that the Chandler estate people, who are essentially uh, agents, I think, based in London, right. Um, thought that uh, Osborne could do this, I guess. Hmm. And so they asked, they found him. They had already gotten John Banville to do it three or four years ago. Yeah. Osborne, by the way, took took uh, Banville to task because, and it was Banville writing, by the way, is Benjamin Black, which is his sort of, when he writes a crime novel, he uses that uh, pen name. <laughs> Osborne took... Uh, Benjamin Black Banville to task for because uh, he never went to L.A. Banville is from uh-huh. Ireland, and he you know he just did it all with uh, online research. I would think, which you know a lot of writers can make that work. Osborne, right. it's the one thing that Osborne is a bit militant. I won't say militant about, but he is very opinionated. Right about this, he thinks you have to live. You have to go to the place before you He thinks right. you need to go there and live there and, and research it. He takes pictures. His, I mean, he gets really into yeah. this part of it. And he did live in Mexico, just for the record, uh, right. when he was working for the New York Times. So I think he... Yeah. But, but that seems kind of ridiculous because the L.A. of the 40s and 50s does not exist anymore. Well, that's why I think one of the reasons he set this new novel... In the late eighties, in Mexico, and then moved it to Mexico is to get out of. Yeah, because he that says that vert- he couldn't. I think the interview I saw, Osborne didn't feel comfortable writing about forties and fifties L.A. He said he was never there, and he didn't <sighs> feel like he could uh, wow. do it justice. That uh, certainly limits your opportunities to write historical fiction if you have to be somewhere to write about it. And it seems to totally discount the uh, the power and the the importance uh, the the. Uh, necessity of imagination. I think it comes down to what he's comfortable with when he sits down to write. Right. I don't necessarily think that uh, (laughs) Osborne would tell somebody else how to do it. Although he did in interviews, take a, uh, a bit of, he he compliments Banville. Don't get me wrong as being very talented and and accomplished, but he, you know, he did, uh, put in a little bit of a dig for not you've read the you've read the banville book right i have black eyed blonde yeah and i liked it i mean i thought it was nicely done i mean so i don't know it didn't it did not get the good notices that this one did i mean this has gotten better notices across the board than the the banville Mm -hmm. effort at some point, it might be nice to have you compare the approach of the two for us. I don't know if this is the right juncture for you to do that, but I'm interested in if Banville took a different tact. Banville, to me, working from memory, and it's been several years since I read it, he went for more of a straight Marlowe imitation right. in the voice. And I don't feel that having, I mean, we all just read The Long Goodbye, and I feel like Marlowe's tried, or uh, pardon me, Osborne tried something a bit different here because, for one thing, he's he's moved it out. Marlowe is older now. Right. He's retired. Yeah. Yeah. So the voice, it gives, in my mind, it was a good move because it gave Osborne a chance to work with the voice a bit. He wasn't under as much pressure to just do Marlowe in 1940s and 50s L.A., which mm-hmm. would essentially put more pressure on, I think, to have that same exact sardonic a bit more punchy voice right right the voice in this one isn't quite like that in only to sleep it's he's right. a, and i think he gets away with it that's my take because he's older marlo is older and his you know his style is a bit different but it, so the banville to me, is it reads more... a, to me it reads a bit more the new one reads a bit more like a marlo novel that lawrence osborne wrote i just feel like that's where he went with it ultimately. Yeah. He tr- he I think up- the Robert B. Parker, I, I did read that. It's been more than six years. It's been like 16 or so, but I'm pretty sure it was also sort of trying to 
capture the hard-boiled Chandler style. And you're saying Banville did pretty much the same thing, and it's the Osborne book, which is, um, you know, tried something a little more creative. I don't know if creative is the word. Maybe that is the word. I just feel like it's a... I, I like the the Osborne method, certainly, mm-hmm. in, in the one we just read. It's a, to me, it's a more, it's a, it's a richer book sentence for sentence. Well, yeah. Know. Why would, why read the, uh, the Parker or the Banville when you could just go read Chandler, you know, <laughs> why take an imitation when you can just go get the real thing. And with Osborne, he's giving us some reason to read the book because it's a, you know, an elaboration on Chandler's work. So Banville and Parker both said it in the original era? Yes. Okay. Parker, definitely, yeah. So I never I never read him. I think you read the other two because you've already burned through the Marlowe novels and you've got a Marlowe Jones. Right. So when you when one of them publishes one, you go ahead and get it. <laughs> That's why you read, read Chandler it again. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean Yeah. So the other two um, didn't work or didn't work in the way that you expected them to work? I've, it's been too long since uh-huh. I read the Spencer, the uh, Parker attempt. That was clear back in the 90s. Right. So I don't remember. Paul might remember better than I do. Not so much. I do know that he, he does manage to get the, uh, the one-liners because um, I re- remember... The only thing I remember from that book are several of the one-liners. Mm-hmm. That did seem to be missing with Osborne. Yeah. Other than well, the Marlo's sim- older, you know. <laughs> other other than the similes, he does lay yeah. in quite a few of those. Hmm. For example, I mean, you don't get very far into the book until you get right. one of the. You guys can keep talking if you want to while I search for the little. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't remember they offered, any singers. They offered oh, to buy me an early dinner and bared the teeth of friendly hyenas who have done their killing for the day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of still hitting the, uh, uh, yeah, the metaphors and the, uh, and, you know, alluding to certain things. But yeah, I definitely think he missed the, the one-liners, or at least even a, a stab at him. I don't think he was trying for it. I think there are a few places where he has a bit of a caustic comment to somebody, but I don't think there's a zinger where he really lays out something. I'm trying to think of an example from The Long Goodbye, you know, where he where he really tells somebody off. Um, Yeah. But his his interchange with some of the some of the characters at times is caustic enough that it seemed to me that it's at least Marlowe esque. Well, yeah, I mean, some of the uh, the conversations he had with you know the uh, uh, the lackeys and the uh, before he got eventually down to uh, um, Zen himself and was talking to him had some of that same feel, but they. They were definitely missing some of the the teeth of the original Marlowe, but that's probably chalked up to an age thing. He's lost that uh, that level of testosterone to really fight with somebody. I don't know. He brought that uh, silver tip cane. <laughs> well, he did need to be armed at some point, though, didn't he? I mean, that's kind of the the rule of the detective. But I frankly found the. I never the, carry a gun. I found the fight scene. In only to sleep to be more riveting than probably any of the f- fight scenes I've ever encountered in uh, in Chandler's novels. Oh yeah. Well, it was convenient. When you say the, oh, sorry, it was convenient that you know everybody was you know refrained from arming themselves with a gun. I mean, Marlowe would have been SOL if that guy had been you know, up to date and modern and decided to go with a gun. I mean, it would have been a short book. <laughs> or if it'd been in the United States, he would have had a gun. So, right. 
he kind of it's almost like he goes down there to and he says that the whole novel is really about being old and he what does he want one more he says it's several different ways yeah yes and it's there's several points when it's just like that i mean the guy with the top when he goes up to the little villa to get the money and it ends up being the guy with the top and so you know it's getting ready to this could be it. And Marlowe knows this could be it. And he, he says that Yeah. if, if I came up here to die, then I, you know, I don't remember what, how he phrases it exactly. Right. But he's almost tempting it several times in the novel. Just looking for a charge. And if he dies, he dies. Right. Yeah. It was, it was an interesting story. Although I was, I don't know. There were, there were parts of it that I was, I don't know. I mean, yes, there's it's it's definitely Marlowe dealing with being old. I don't know, but I, I I don't quite know how to put my finger on it, but it seems to me like there was just something missing. And maybe that what it's missing is youth, and I'm just not wanting to admit it. Does it make sense? You're too young to read this book, Jason. You just need to give it a decade, man. <laughs> We'll have you back. You guys are only about four years older than me. Come on. It's a, it's, <laughs> it was a very intense four years, though. So, um, yeah, I, you can elaborate on that. I don't, I don't know. Um, the missing youth. Somehow, you think what was what was the the feeling that that was lacking in the reader because of that element wasn't in the book. I guess I don't really know what you were missing. Yeah, I have, I've been thinking on it and I still can't quite pin it down. One of the things that seemed interesting to me that I think is different than even in The Long Goodbye where Marlowe's a little more mature than he is in The Big Sleep even mm-hmm. in the earlier books, Marlowe tends to linger a lot in this book. We get uh, details about he has a, an exchange with someone in the community. Then he goes back to his hotel and he tells us what happens that night, uh, that he had drinks and he watched the, the sun over the sea. And then he had these really crazy dreams. There's just this, this lingering quality, which to me fits with the theme of age, because on one hand, he's on this last mission, right. this last case. And so you have this narrative drive that you want to find out what happened to Linder, the real Linder, and you want to find out what the, what Zinn is up to, and you, you want to solve the case, but this is it. This is the last go-round. So to some extent, well, let's not solve the case too quickly because <laughs> this is really special. This is it. And so right. I think that, that the book sort of just is laced with that sense of, um, I'm going to go through this and I'm going to savor it because it's all I'm going to have. And so even in the, this, the, you know, the, the fight scene that you guys talked about that notion that, well, here I am, he could just grab that knife and finish me off. Well, by God, I'm going to go through it and, and go through it self-consciously and think about what I'm experiencing. Right. And that was really powerful for me. But interestingly, maybe sort of counterintuitive to a detective novel, right? You think the whole point of a detective novel is that narrative drive. And I think this was a detective novel with narrative drive that was somehow magically counterbalanced with this lack of narrative drive, this sort Mm -hmm. of desire to just luxuriate in the details of, in this case, Mexico and the scenery, but really just the exotic notion of you're a guy on this case that you've got to solve. No, no. Hmm. Did anyone notice? Well, this is more of a of a criticism for the editor, whoever that is, than than Osborne himself. But I I ended up whipping out my red pen at a couple of points because there were there were repetitions within sentences. It only happened a few times, but it always drives me crazy when it does happen. And I'll see if I can find one here. 
You mean like redundancies or or the same word twice? The same word twice. Here, page uh, 117. She was suddenly flustered and lost her grip for a moment. Her lower lip moved uselessly for a moment before she took up the thread again. And those two, a moment, for a moment, for a moment, are so close together, I would have, as an editor, said, drop one of them. She was suddenly flustered and lost her grip. Her lower lip moved uselessly for a moment before she took up the thread again. You know, or she was suddenly uh -huh. flustered and lost her grip for a moment. Her lower lip moved uselessly before she took up the thread again. See, it's better when you drop one of them. But they're so close together, that phrase, for a moment. And it happens a couple of other times in here that it kind of like was like, why wouldn't an editor catch that? So that just seems kind of yeah. like it. at some point there was some carelessness getting this out and thinking, oh, it'll go just because it's we've got this hook. Somebody's writing a new Marlowe book. But that's just a yeah, little Yeah, that's intriguing. Isn't that one of the things you catch in your own writing? Yeah, it just seems to be. I mean, you just you put that same word in there re repeatedly, maybe not even that close together. And then when you're reading through it, you see it and it just stands out. Yeah, and it didn't. And so that I didn't seem to stand out yeah. to anybody here. Wow. I don't know. Could it be intentional? Is there some sort of you, you just read it and it certainly sounded better. So, yeah, if it was there... if it was an intentional thing, then then, yeah, that's an Osborne thing. And I'm not going to like it much. <laughs> Well, Todd's read a lot of him, right? You've read several of his books. I've read, yes, I have. And what are you asking me? Is that is he a, is he a repeater? Does he repeat words? I've not picked up on it, although I think I probably noticed a couple of these when I was reading. Yeah, uh, only to sleep. They weren't showstoppers for me, or even I just didn't linger. I moved on. Yeah, it's I guess it's just a thing for me. I mean, <laughs> but no, I was I was like I thought Todd, there I, was enough richness to the prose. I just, you know, overall, it was better than just about anything else we read this summer. Hmm. That's where I was. With it. <laughs> it, I mean, it was head and shoulders just... above most of what we read. That's I mean, we're not to that point in the discussion yet, but well, we can set move right into it. We've we've been at it for a while, and I, you know, I was, yeah, I don't. I guess I just I got done with it, and you know, I'm still trying to figure out what that thing is that feels like it's missing for me. And like I said, it could just be that. You know, I haven't quite squared my expectation with what's been presented, which is a problem, you know, for a lot of people when they sit down to read sometimes. And there is a set of expectations. So that's something that I find interesting when you do have someone come along and and pick up a a character from another writer and begin doing that because they do bring a lot of that their own artistic rules and requirements, their own aesthetic, their own interpretation of this character. And it would be interesting to, if there was maybe some lot some lost text somewhere where uh, Raymond Chandler did a uh, an aged Marlowe, and and to put the two of them against each other, what would Chandler have seen Marlowe in his seventies as, as opposed to Osborne? Well, what what if this weren't a Marlowe novel? That's one of the things that kept occurring to me mm -hmm. what if this was just if 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 osborne had created his own detective who happened to be 72 in 1989 mm -hmm. am i remembering yeah. that right um did this have to be Marlowe? yes because he was hired by the chandler estate <laughs> that's your answer to that. that's, that's the literal that's answer that's why we have todd on the podcast so he can answer those tough ones that require philosophical depth yes but you know just the, to me the idea of doing a marlowe novel is kind of dumb you know i just i think chandler's chandler and why you would why you would do that i don't know so i went into this with some real mixed feelings todd had said he was a really uh, osborne was a really great writer 
And I came out of it being impressed with this as a meditation on age. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I don't care as much about the question. But when I get to the end, I'm not totally sold on the idea that this had to be Philip Marlowe that I know from from right. Chandler's prose. I just I like this detective and being there for his his last case, whether he's really Marlowe or whether he's if Lawrence Osborne had created a detective character that was different. Yeah, maybe yeah. that, that might have. I think the Chandler is here. I am, you know, on the just from a practical standpoint. I suspect, and I have not researched it to confirm, you know, why the Chandler estate first sought out Banville and then followed that with Osborne. Mm-hmm. But aren't they really just trying to get people reading Chandler again? Isn't that the oh. idea? They're Good trying, point. To, trying to reignite interest in the Marlowe novels by. Yes. I didn't I, think of I that think at all. I think that's where they're the going with it. Right. Then, yeah, I, I hope they keep doing it because that's, that's great if that's what that's doing. And I don't know if they should. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like you. I usually come to this with the idea that I, you know, it's always a bit of a mixed bag because you've got the, that voice of that Chandler created. Right, right. And to me, uh, you know, as I've as I've already said, I feel like Marlowe made the or uh, Osborne <laughs> made the a good creative decision when he set it in Mexico and had Marlowe be older. Yeah, yeah. It gave him a little bit more freedom to do the voice that probably Osborne, from a literary standpoint, could could get into, and it got him out of having to do that punchy forties and fifties. Right. Imitation. Right. right. Well, it also gave him something to do with the book. I mean, rather than just another hard-boiled 40s thing, it's like, let's take a look at the hard-boiled detective in the Reagan era, you know, in in advanced age. That's that's a fascinating idea by itself. Yeah. 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 I guess I should make it clear I didn't dislike the book, and there were moments in there that I thought were were really good and, and graceful as far as the writing goes. I enjoyed it. Like I said, there's just something that I haven't quite been able to, you know, that, that sits a little off to one side. It's just like, eh. and maybe maybe like Paula said, if this wasn't a, a Marlowe character, you know, I would have that little thing off to the side wouldn't be there, and. For me, it's just kind of still trying to, you know, Osborne made some attempts to to bridge that that gap between the last Chandler book and and this one to kind of, you know, show that arc of the character. But I'm wondering if, I don't know, maybe maybe I wanted just a little bit more of that to get the uh, to get my hand around the transition, around that aging process, and what. Um, what might have damaged him physically and emotionally between the last time we see him in Chandler's hands and then when we see him in Osborne's. Because he's... The, the Chandler stories get him, you know, beat up and physically, you know, damaged. What, he has a cane now, but kind of, well, what what gave him this... What gave him the cane? Is he just is it just an old age hip thing, or is this um, the result of of a of a case that took more out of him than he had planned on? And, and is he? He told so, us why he has it. I mean, the did right. I just miss it? He, yeah, because he he's seventy. Into a, he goes into a bit of detail about it. The impression I get with the the way this uh, only to sleep Marlowe works is that he's gotten. He's in retirement and he's a little bored and he's hanging out at the, his house and he plays right. cards with the guys. And so anything like a silver tipped cane or some of these other things, you know, he's just picked them up along the way because it's entertaining. Right. Well, can I ask, um, do we know of specific references in this book to the Chandler material. 
there were several cases mentioned and names mentioned. And when I tried to look them up, I got a sense that they were creations of Osborne. Plus, most of them are the dates of the cases he refers to are often in the 70s and yeah. the 60s. And what the last uh, was it Poodle Springs that is like 58 or something like that, if I'm getting that right. That's just off the top of my head. So I don't think there are specific references to the earlier Chandler books in any of those cases in here. Right. Uh, but I might have missed one. Todd, did you? What about the – he does mention that he's been married once. That's the yep. only thing good, I can think good. of. Good. But no, I don't really don't think he was trying to extend any of those. No. I, I tend to agree, Paul. Did I miss – I guess we assume his uh, his wife. Well, he said being married made him unstable. You right. Can assume it didn't work out. <laughs> He's happier with his house and his maid and that dog yeah. that he rescued from the whatever it was. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that's what's missing is that there's so much of that. that transitional stuff, you know, we get that he leaves vague and mysterious. You know, I was divorced once and it, you know, made me crazy. And I don't know where to go with the something's missing thing. I mean, that, cause I didn't really have that when I read right. this, but yeah, it's no, I'm possible not... to experience the book differently though. So yeah, well, that's just, yeah. Kind of what I'm speculating on. I'm, I'm not looking for anyone to give me an answer. I'm just saying, this is, I'm still trying to cast about and figure out, what it is and maybe for me it's because i know that in my own writing i have to understand these gaps even if they don't show up and there has to be and maybe that's kind of what it is, is that osborne makes all these gestures to that to that gap between the last chandler and, and this one that they they just feel like half gestures and i'm not expecting i wasn't expecting full flashbacks and give us all this stuff that but maybe just a you know, a simple it wouldn't sentence. wouldn't have been relevant to the case. But it, but a lot of what's going on is him wrestling with with that age and, and these dreams. And so I'm just... Like I said, it could have been maybe just an extra sentence or a, something. I don't know. It's just like, to me, there's this this vast... There's the, there's the, the, the mystery of the case he's working on, and then there's just this total mystery of how he got here to me i know he got older it went through the 60s and the 70s and he makes comments about cases and a few remembered names here and there but i don't know like i said it's probably just me dragging my own unreasonable expectations into the story and and not feeling like they've been managed i can just tell you that i was delighted when he got to the uh was it the villa? I don't remember what it how he how it's described is what he called it. But when he got to the to the lenders slash Zen's party, the mask oh affair, the masquerade. I thought that party was just I love that party. Why don't you what have a party like that? Scene. Scene. Perhaps, Todd. <laughs> well, be because because it's the acoustics don't work very well. Oh, okay. It's an yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Todd doesn't have enough glass surfaces for weirdo strangers to do cocaine off of. That's true. Right. <laughs> and I don't want people to get my house dirty. I'll have to come, I'll have to clean it up later. I it is have, a nice place. I don't have staff to do it for me. So. Right. The Zen, you know, the Zens have staff, I think. Yep. The and, one thing I will say about that <laughs> masked affair, even though that scene was quite good, I thought the. I went with it because it was so vivid and fun, uh -huh. but I did think the the Zens kind of threw that party together awfully quickly. But apparently they're running with that crowd down there, and right. mm -hmm. you're just kind of supposed to assume that these people can all know where to go at the drop of a hat. I don't know. It's a different world for me. <laughs> but they're live, you know, yeah. it's kind of the party scene in Mexico, apparently, is what we're led to believe, the people that made out during the Reagan right. years. The party and they're just scene. down there, they're just down there decaying. Right, the leisurely rich just you—you you can drop everything at 
in yeah. an instant and go to a, a masked party. And you can be a little more slippery down there, right? Isn't yeah. that why Zen stages his suicide down there or whatever you want to call it? Because the police will be, a, we say, the police right. will be a little bit more easily paid off to kind of look the other way. You, you know what that makes me think of? We're talking about references to the actual Chandler cases. He actually avoids making a really obvious reference to the long goodbye and Terry Lennox, right? Because Terry went down there to disappear. He did. The only thing I'll say about the long goodbye is there are a couple. There was a line in here. He he wanted to tell him goodbye or something. Uh huh. Hmm. So that that word does echo just a bit, but it was pretty subtle and understated. If he was trying for that, I don't know that he What's, was. I think he might have been, but it's definitely a conscious choice of his not to mention Terry Lennox and go, well, I knew a lot about Mexico because I had to go take a guy down there at one time and he got away. And he does mention the afterward about the Robert Altman film where where it actually ends in the same town where where the the last scene of this book is. So that's could you believe that was accidental? Osborne apparently thinks the Altman effort was successful. <laughs> I, I think it's better than, I think it's pretty interesting. I mean, I um, watched it again with a, a different group, a group of people who are not detective aficionados and not necessarily Chandler aficionados. Mm-hmm. And they, um, um, they were uh, maybe easier on it than we were. Hmm. Uh, I think it's an interesting film. I, I think it's flawed in the end, but um it's been it's a while since I've seen it. What does Os? What do you make of what Osborne does with uh, Marlowe's whole code of honor in this novel? To me, if there was something to argue about, that would be maybe what it is. As as Os, I, I, I guess we're supposed to think that as uh, Marlowe got into his seventies and you know his code that mm-hmm. we talked about in the Long Goodbye, which is so almost ridiculously precious at times. Right. And here he's not quite so high-minded, is he? Or is he? Yes and no. I mean, because I think uh, for the longest time when he took the money from them, I thought, wow, he's <laughs> he's really going to take the cash. But I believe we're supposed to think that all along his plan was to give it to Paul's dad. He gives it to him at the end, doesn't he? Yeah. He had to give half to that guy with the topper though yeah so that guy would leave him alone <laughs> i don't blame him for paying that guy off <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah and wasn't buy two suits yeah and, you yeah. know but you know, well, i can fair. forgive it i can forgive him the two suits <laughs> but wasn't the guy with the top wasn't he just kind of a hired patsy you know, just hired muscle and, and giving him the money wasn't so much about to get rid of him, but to... The guy was going to take every penny of it if he didn't make the deal, and he was going to have to fight him to the death. Ah, yeah, that's right. Well, did he also find out where they had gone to Mexico City? Yeah, he him? tracked... Well, old, uh, old, old Zinn was in the bag in the, in the house in the party uh, the next day. Right, but I mean... But by that point, Marlowe knew that they were heading. And I thought Marlowe got that from Topper. And that's part of the reason he let him take that money was he got information. He did get information from him. Yeah. But I really think he just gets he gets the information as part of the deal he's making. But he gave him the money just to get rid of him so he wouldn't have to fight him again. Would would a younger Marlowe have fought him again? Oh, I don't know. That's a hard question. Because... You know, maybe maybe if there is, because I think for the most part, Marlowe's um, code is intact, but it's restricted by his age. I think maybe if he had been younger, there would have been another fight with this guy. Maybe not something direct, or, or Marlowe would have been able to or at least have the confidence that he could have outrun him. And he's just paying him off because he knows he can't beat him. Yeah, if it were a younger Marlowe, the guy wouldn't have survived the first encounter. Maybe. Yeah. He wouldn't have been as eager to come after him with a knife. 
I think the guy, <laughs> you know, you mentioned the guy didn't bring a gun. Right. And if, if we can explain it away, and it is an interesting question, and it definitely serves Osborne's purposes from a new from just from a plot standpoint right from the logistics but if we can but if we can work it out i mean the guy probably thinks he can take him right he underestimates me he didn't think there was a sword underneath that cane right 70 year old he just thinks he's gonna take him out it's gonna be easy you would think yeah yeah so are there gun is there sorry go ahead Go, go ahead is there a gun anywhere in the book Trying to remember, I might have just forgotten. But yeah, the uh, the guy that the old fisherman that he goes to shoots a shotgun at him when he's out. The guy that found uh, found the body found the body. Yeah, washed ashore. It's about the uh, the only gun aside from the cops who never use yeah. theirs, and the ones that are shot off in the distance at all the the you know carnivals and parties, but. Well, that's just interesting because in the, you know, the earlier novels, people are always pulling guns on each other and getting their gun taken away and pointing a gun at someone else. And, <laughs> and there's just none of that in this book. None of it. Yeah. I don't think anybody holds anybody at gunpoint ever. No, that, the guy that finds the, that found um, Paul Linder's body on the shore yeah, okay. held Marlowe at gunpoint. And he does, yeah. He didn't really have the heart. He wasn't going to shoot Marlowe. He just had it there because he was scared. Yeah. It was, overall, I I enjoyed it. I just so I don't I don't want to give anybody the impression that I didn't. There's just this little thing off to one side that I'm like, one. Eh. And it's yeah, how close are you sitting to Todd right now? Because I wouldn't say anything bad about Lawrence Osborne. <laughs> if I've been swinging distance at Robbins because he'll. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well. It's a valid point, and you guys have, you know, I am a bookseller, and yep. I'm trying to sell this book right now. <laughs> I don't need anybody questioning my book. <laughs> okay. So let's let's take a, a quick look back at, at all of our stuff here, because um, we did start off with Raymond Chandler. We started off with Philip Marlowe, and here we are wrapping it up, and somewhere in between we went on on quite a trip and looking back at 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 your um your breakdown paul what do you think it is that we that we missed in in our reading what did we not touch on that was covered in your uh, your your points there I don't. I, I can't think of anything. I mean, I, I would say that there are probably some pretty simplistic procedurals out there where the superhero cop tries to solve the case all because he's believes in the flag and apple pie. And there's probably some pretty simplistic noir out there where somebody mm-hmm. is motivated by a detective is motivated just by a code. So I would say all of the stuff that we picked are are fairly sophisticated in where they f- fall on the breakdown. Um, I you know I think we hit what I would have wanted to hit. Right, Todd. Was there anyone that we missed? Because let's see, we had Meg Abbott, we had uh, Charles Williford, Elroy, and Leonard. And well, I feel like we pr- inevitably we missed quite a bit. Right. I mean, there's a lot of really good writers out there that we could have done. We just, we tried in the six episodes <laughs> to get what we could. And we got, we got, we picked some nice stuff, but mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, we could have done some other stuff. We could have done, I mean, we could have done James Crumley for one thing. Right. Oh yeah. And that's just one example. So, and it couldn't be helped and we can't, you know, we had to sure. pick what we had to pick. What I'm curious about though is, is from what we've read, um, are there any writers that are, let's say, fellow travelers, spinoffs, related writers that we could send our audience off to go and investigate on their own? Or me in particular, since that we don't have already. So we've got Crumley. We didn't get um, uh, uh, 
Devil in a Blue Dress. Um, oh, Walter Mosley. Walter Mosley. On the um, noir side, I mean, we might as well send him to Scott Phillips, right? Right. Sure. So overall, then, Todd, was this one, Only to Sleep, your favorite out of the batch that we did read? If we're going to pick favorites, then I would probably have the two Chandler novels. Mm -hmm. The two Marlowe novels for me are the best. Just for, and that's just, I'm not saying they're the best novels necessarily or trying to make that case. I'm just saying for me to sit down and read the books that we did, I enjoyed those two the most. Right, right. The Long Goodbye and Only to Sleep, just for my reading pleasure. Okay. What about you, Paul? Well, uh, the Pension novel, Inherent Vice, is, is a real core text for me and has been since it came out. Mm -hmm. So it would top the list, but that's almost kind of unfair because it was already on my list. Um, and discovering the Brodigan that we did paired up with it was probably the thing to me that was the most um, astounding about the experience, the reading I did actually for the podcast. Uh, then I agree that the, the two Marlowe bookends were um, were great. Yeah. The Williford too is, is really interesting. Um, I really, Elroy I had studied Sorry. before too, and I'm kind of, um, I think that this was the swan song for my Elroy interest after <laughs> doing that for this podcast. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, for me, Elroy's at the bottom on this one. It was, it was just grueling to get through. And, you know, Chandler is definitely at the top, just, and it was familiar with something I'd read before. One of the, uh, the, f one of the foundational authors for, for the hard boy thing. It's a shame we didn't also get into uh, Dashiell Hammett. Um, the Maltese Falcon is another one of those foundational texts. Um, as far as discovering the new stuff, because most everything aside from the Chandler was stuff that I had not read before. I I knew about the authors. I'd read some other Brodigan before, and some other Pynchon, um, but everybody else for me was um, well. And Leonard, I guess I'd read some Leonard before. Everybody else was a was a discovery. Megan Abbott was probably the the biggest pleasing surprise for me. I was walked into that one, not sure what to expect, and felt like that. Yes, for a first novel, it. It had its flaws. Every first novel does, but on a on a level of tone and theme, it was probably the most um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? True to the uh, uh, the origins of the genre. She nailed that tone. Of course, it was more crime than detective, but I was really surprised by that one. Um, struggled with James Elroy. I'm with you. Elroy is at the bottom for me of the books we read. It just, I struggled with it too. <laughs> I, I did. The Brodigan was fun. Yeah. Yes, it was. I thoroughly enjoyed that. So where should I, let's see. So where should I go next? Who's new? Who's somebody that outside of our reading list and the other people we've mentioned, where should we go next? Where should I go next in, in crime and war? Who's somebody on your radar? Paul, Todd. Wow. I don't know about anybody new, but I would say there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of, uh, pension postmodern Brodigan. Uh, there's that, that vein of, of writing that where they're sort of taking the genre and using it for weird purposes. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there's French writers like Robe Grier that do it, in the, the nouveau roman, very experimental style, and yet it's like technically the a detective story. Exactly. Oh uh, yeah, I've read that one. Yes. That was good. There you go. And and then maybe just more fun writers, maybe like Barry Gifford, um, and you know, that it's not so much the experimental style as it's just uh uh sort of that pastiche um weird postmodern tone um, mm -hmm. a lot of other examples out there like that that you could explore i like those philip kerr novels ah, uh, yeah. bernie gunther 
He's a detective in World War II Germany. And they're just, they're straight. I mean, it's pretty much the Chandler thing. Right. But it's very good. And and Bernie, for me, is a great narrator. I just love him. Plus, there's Nazi Germany, so it kind of connects to our time now. (laughs) How to deal with fascists as a detective, right? It's hard. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and one thing you could say, too, one thing we didn't really do, didn't try to do, is there is that sort of game out there, I think, in the publishing industry where um, you try to come up with setting the detective story in every possible culture and historical time period. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think I saw the other day there's there's a detective series that's set in ancient Egypt. <laughs> you know, how so. Does, well, how does that work? <laughs> Well, you just, you know, you're you're a priest in the temple and somebody tried to poison the pharaoh's figs and you got to figure out how the heck that happened, you know? Um, so I, I think there's probably every place and time period in history somebody has tried to set a detective, create right, a detective right. for that time period. So. Well, I guess then the, the name of the rose, that would be a, oh, a medieval great, yeah. detective story. Too yeah. long. Hmm? too long too long it's not too long at all robbins i'm not sitting in the same room so i can say whatever i want well and y'all can't um, see each other because i don't have the two monitor set up here so um yeah uh eco or echo however you say that umberto echo yeah um his last book and even the book before that the prague cemetery or the cemetery in prague whatever the heck that is i couldn't read it um, um those are all pretty much riffing on the detective story. Right. I thought Prague Cemetery didn't, didn't work. I didn't, I didn't even finish it. I, yeah, I admit I got halfway through it, and it didn't, didn't work for me either. But. So what about— I still want to uh, read that last one. It's called like The Zero or Zero or something mm-hmm, like that. I've mm-hmm. got it. I just haven't gotten around to it. So have you guys read—who um, is it? Roberto Bologna? Bologna? Oh, uh, yeah. The Savage Detectives in—was it 1666? Twenty. 2666. Okay. 2666. Yeah. Were those any good? Do they, how do they fit in with, uh, with your three styles of detective? Oh man. The detective part in, in 2666 is just amazing. And it's just one part of the whole experience. Um, I think Bologna's uh, amazingly talented. Um, God, I don't know that detective. He almost is off the charts. He doesn't. He just. It's just so dark, and he's he's um, facing the femicides. Mm-hmm. That situation down in Juarez in Mexico, where you know literally hundreds of women were murdered. Wow. And there's like a different murdered woman in the desert every day, and it's just he just is trudging about his business. But I don't know that he's motivated by, you know, his his duty to his job or his desire to solve the case. It's just, it's really dark <laughs> and amazing. Had you read the savage detectives as well? No, I haven't. Have you? No, I have it on my shelf at home. Yeah. I'd li- I, yeah. Trying to get around to it, but that would be a great one to pick up. He's got a really great, um, uh, short story. It's on the New Yorker. It's online. And I'm trying to remember the name. It's just a guy's name. I think it's something like, Frank Burns or something like that, but it's a really weird. It's just this generic name, and it's this really watching weird. Watching Mash first... episodes on. Oh, is that the guy from Mash? Yeah, Frank Gosh, Burns I was. <laughs> I taught that story. How can I not remember the damn title? I had to Google it here really quick or something. Dang it! Um, but yes, when when Bologna fiddles with the detective story, it's it, it's pretty good. I think. We flirted with reading Tough Guys Don't Dance, which Ooh. who's that's Norman Mailer. Oh, that's right. That's right. Voice wise, it's I mean, I haven't read it for a long time, but it's got that first person narrator. Mm-hmm. It's just I mean, I suppose if you were going to have somebody going to be home sitting around in a snowstorm for a couple of days, <laughs> I wouldn't feel too bad saying, oh, try that. Norman Mailer. Okay. The voice is great.
Um, any last thoughts, comments, insights, jibes? <laughs> I guess the question I'd ask is, and I think Paul's going after it a bit with the postmodern angle that he's recommending, but where should a writer, if we were going to ask a question based on what we've read and mm-hmm. talked about, if you're a writer now and you're interested in this this genre or these this particular approach, I mean, where would you take it? Hmm. If we were gonna if we were gonna take it one last direction here. And you know, I haven't really thought it all the way through. I just thought of that question right now, but Well this is just because it's on the top of my head right now. And because it's kind of relevant to our, our socio-political situation right now is is do we have a a kind of a, a, a digital an internet detective? Is there somebody are we taking this genre and moving it into uh, virtual reality in, in, a, in a certain way? Not necessarily you know like they're in second life or something and being a detective there, but most of their detective work isn't gumshoeing it out on the street, but you know, finding a hacker somewhere. I mean, is somebody doing that? Does Gibson do that, Paul? You've read Gibson, haven't you? Yeah, I'd say there might be some of the... Is Pension doing it in that other book? Yes, there is the um, sort of early days of the internet and the deep web show up in Bleeding Edge. Mm -hmm. Um, And that came out... It's almost uh, like you're asking if somebody should... Put the Philip K. Dick angle on it in a way. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. You could talk about a Scanner Darkly as a noir novel too, though, or even Blade Runner. What is it? Le- Android's Dream of Electric right. Sheep. You right. could you could put those in this category too. I didn't even think of like having sort of a a sci-fi subgenre of. I noir like your fiction. idea. I like your idea. Yeah, because you know it. It seems to me that with the the intensity of of or not the intensity, but the the um, the current development and the and this of, of forensic science, you know, they can find hairs and fibers and things and whatever. Now, I'm sure that the way they present it on TV is wildly different than the way it is in real life. But it seems to me that right now, if you commit a physical crime in the physical world, it's pretty easy for them to catch you these days. There's not a lot for. Um, I don't know a lot of the Wichita. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. yeah. I mean, if if you've got if you've got a, a <laughs> well, we'll try not to be too nasty about our local police force. They might show up at the door, you know. But but yeah, with with lax, um, you know, campaign finance laws, all kinds of all this. It seems to me that the crimes that people are mostly getting away with now are ones perpetrated online, and. You've got a lot of room for looking into, I mean, we saw what happened in the 2016 election. Right. And then you could, I think, have quite a bit of fun thinking about where this goes in 20, by the time we're to 2024 or 2028. How out of control does this get? (laughs) And we don't know quite where the technology goes, but a novelist could certainly have fun with it. Right, right. Yeah, it's it could get somewhere. You're an, so you've yeah, got some project in the works of your own there, Jason, that you're hinting at, right? No, no, not really. Back I'm, of your mind, you're just hinting at. Yeah, I'm just speculating as where someone could go. I don't know that I have the uh, the interest or the uh, uh, drive to do the kind of research I would need to do to write a a believable, um, you know, detective or crime book where the primary crime is is internet hacking or you know something like that i don't know that i would i have a full-time job paul i mean good grief how do you research that (laughs) yeah that would be that that would be part of the challenge Uh, i don't know if there's obviously the imagination in terms of a sci-fi angle where you you know you, you set it 15 years in the future, 20 years in the future, which now is like a century of technological change. True. So, I mean, I guess VR would be the next thing that would come up that would, 
you know, I mean, if if you're if you're really wanting to be a a hard boiled '40s detective in LA, you're going to be able to do that in ten or fifteen years in a in a VR setting. Yeah. So there's always that sort of way to play with the genre, sort of self-conscious, um, self-consciously mm-hmm. have characters who are trying to, who are caught up in it. I mentioned Phillips earlier, and I think a good way to do it is the way he's been doing it in a couple of those and just picking up more on the Williford angle with the characters who, who's uh, sort of the, the sociopath character and sort of <laughs> rationalizing behaviors and and uh getting off on a sort of a crime spree right if right. you will and i don't know it's it, it's just it's a good way to go it's fun the psychopathic incompetent crook is the best way to go <laughs> i don't know the that, <laughs> you read rake I mean, yeah that, that guy wasn't that incompetent he pulled it off the true he? true not to throw any spoilers in there but well, that was, that was, I don't have a, a lot of Scott Phillips under my belt, uh, maybe four, five books, but I don't have The Walk Away on there because that one's hard to find. I've not read The Walk Away. Um, the but, Ice Harvest, you see more of a comical element where right. characters sliding around on the ice yeah. on Christmas Eve. and. Mm-hmm. And the adjustment was... That one was funny. Yeah. Just from a... <laughs> and let's see, what else? Um, oh, it was the historical was... one, wasn't there? It was Rake. There was... Cottonwood. Was his... Yeah, Cottonwood. historical novel, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's good, too. And Hop Alley. And... Hop Alley I liked a lot. Oh, there's one... What was the one? Oh crap! I'll have to go back and look through them because I, I've got them stacked on the shelf, and then I've got that collection of the stories. Um, was it rum something in, or something yeah. something in rum? Can't I haven't the name read of it. that collection yet. But well, and Phillips uh, said to me the other day that. I didn't even know this that I guess Antonia Nelson wrote a a BTK based serial killer novel set in Wichita. Really? Yeah. He mentioned it like I should have known that and I'm like, "Oh, wow." You look it up. <laughs> um but that I mean, there could be almost be a sort of a subgenre of writers who um, aren't necessarily associated with the genre who come in and write a detective novel Mm -hmm. um, because the form is so, you know, trenchant in in American culture. Because I read, I was thinking there was a a poet named uh, Stephen Dobbins who... uh, uh, is mainly known for his poetry, and then on he chucks out detective novels mm-hmm. too, several. Um, so there's sort of those kind of interesting writers too. It's not necessarily the thing that they write all the time, but they certainly step into the genre when it someplace they want to go. Yeah, yeah. The Antonia Nelson novel is called Bound. Oh, well. Guys, what, what what was left? I think that's it. I we think we're done. Oh, excellent! We've got, we're at the end. I kind we're of feel like end. Marlo. I don't. I just want to <laughs> savor the moment. I don't want to actually have the end of the the book. Um, yeah. Well, thank so, you guys but, for taking the time to do this with me. And pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it's nice of you to have us on board. All right. Don't uh, don't commit any crimes. I mean, if you do, bizarre yachts. <laughs> When we get that uh, masked party going, we'll we'll just do a podcast from that. All right. The Outrider Podcast is hosted by me, Jason Quinn-Malott, and produced by Heather Ann Eden. 
You can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher and go there to please rate us and give us a review. Or you can get the show straight from our host, podbean.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.